Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Childhood spent exploring creeks, streams, and ponds inspired a lifelong dedication to protect aquatic biodiversity for J.R. Shute and Pat Rakes. Together, they founded Conservation Fisheries, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation of aquatic biodiversity in streams and rivers, particularly in the southeast. In today's episode of River Talks, JR and Pat join Cumberland River Compact Program Manager Jed Grubbs to share their wealth of natural history knowledge about the rare and imperiled species that call our waters home. They share why our region is so biodiverse, the unique life history of things like freshwater mussels, and the delicate dance between the endangered barren's top minnows and the pervasive mosquito fish. Plus, you will hear about how an upcoming stream restoration project with the Cumberland River Compact is protecting crucial habitat for the Barron's Top Minnow in Coffee County. Really appreciate y'all uh, taking some time out of your schedule to join us here. I am I'm excited to to talk to you as well. I've, I've not really gotten the opportunity to to, to speak with y'all and really admire what you do with conservation fisheries. So, so thank you for, for all that you've done, continue to do there and for taking the time to be with us here today. So to um, get us started, please just, just tell us more about yourselves. Uh, did y'all grow up interested in, in fish and aquatic biodiversity? Did that come later? Um, what sparked all this? I, uh, and I'm sure Pat had similar experiences and I'll let him elaborate, but I, I've always loved the outdoors. Um, I had parents that encouraged that. Um, I would play in the ditches behind the house and look for crayfish. And, you know, one of my, one of my favorite things to do as a kid would be to go down to the creek. And, and, uh, you know, I had parents and a couple of aunts that didn't mind taking me down there and and letting me uh, root around in the water and, and just play and, Dad and I went fishing a lot, and we, he had uh, early on had a couple of fish tanks, and so I always, you know, when the guppies would have babies and things like that, was always a sort of a, an exciting time. So I guess from early on, I, I had a, a, an enjoyment of nature and, and whatnot, and I had some good teachers along the way, but that uh, did a good job of encouraging that as well. Good. How about you, Pat? A, a lot of the same. Um, I was actually born in England. My mother's British. Uh, right. my, my dad was in the Navy over there when, when he met her. Uh, they brought me back when I was six months old, so I, I don't remember anything over there. Hardly. I've been back a couple of times. But um, I grew up in northwest Arkansas. Okay. Uh, and we used to go swim in a nice clear stream in Southwest Virginia. And I, I still remember that because that was when I first discovered a mask and snorkel. Where was uh, that? Uh, near Monette, uh, Arkansas, south of Joplin, um, near, the, near the state, Arkansas, Missouri state line. 
because we used to travel up there in a pickup truck and in, in, you know, in an afternoon, it was easy to close. I had family members who had aquariums and kept them. Um, and I got interested in fish from some of them. Uh, I was pretty much self-taught. Uh, I was a bookworm. <laughs> I had a lot of Nature Life series books, uh, a library of them that my mother still has them, I think. <laughs> but that's where I learned a lot of fish uh, or, or animal behavior and fish behavior and, and reproduction. And I, like, like JR, I had sword tails and guppies and a lot of live bears, which are the easy ones. Uh, I like to raise them. And are those are those saltwater fish or freshwater fish right. that, that you were taking care of freshwater fish there? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't afford okay. saltwater back then. <laughs> <laughs> I've had saltwater tanks since then, but mostly uh, when I was working for an aquarium. Well, Jr. had an aquarium store, and when I used to work for them, I could get stuff a lot cheaper. <laughs> Do we have guppies in in um in the in the region here? Is that a fish that we, that we get? We have a guppy like fish called the mosquito fish okay yeah heard a little bit about them it's a freaking nightmare (laughs) i did my master's thesis it's the reason that that fish is in danger right right yeah and a lot on that yeah i think we'll talk a little bit more about the mosquito fish here in a bit i think well tell us what the mission and history of, of conservation fisheries is i was just looking at a powerpoint that has our mission statement Conservation fisheries is dedicated to the preservation of aquatic biodiversity and ecosystems in the southeastern United States, concentrating on the conservation and recovery of freshwater fishes using captive propagation, habitat assessment, and low-impact monitoring techniques. Like I said before, a lot of that low-impact monitoring is snorkeling, uh, which is not something that fisheries biologists typically do. They go out and shock fish, usually kill them and throw them in formal and to study later. JR and I used to love to keep fish alive and watch the <laughs> behavior. That was far more interesting than dead fish in a jar. <laughs> that seems less less traumatic <laughs> for, for a fish lover. Certainly for the fish. <laughs> and for a fish, yeah, especially for a fish. I've been reading Neo Wilson recently, oh. The Diversity of Life, and, and yeah. you know, a really in, inspiring, incredible guy. But there's sections oh, yeah. in there where they talk about gas in these trees in the rainforest and it's kind of um similar sort of sort of deal where it's a a little traumatizing to read about uh, yeah for years a lot of zoologists that was the you know that that that's just what they did yeah they killed animals and made museum specimens and uh oh yeah you know some of that's necessary to to learn what you need to learn about the animals yeah it's not always necessary yeah. yeah, well, snorkeling seems like a an option that's that y'all have taken advantage of. That's that's it's a neat one, I, um, and a, and a fun one for others to to participate in. It it seems like too. Um, you, well, y'all not, do a bit of that, right? Yeah. Well, it's not only just enjoyable for us. We we get to see the animals in their habitat or in their micro habitat. Sometimes even when you're out with the same net, it's you know, you'll come up with these fish in the net, but you don't know exactly where they came from. Right. And when we're out there looking at them in the water, you you really get a feel for what their behavior's like, uh, what kind of substrate they like to hang out on, what kind of current they like. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they hide under rocks or do they are they out in the open most of the time? 
you just you you can learn an awful lot about the fish just by being in the water with them and watching them. Yeah, and not just out there in the water with them, but when you bring them back into your aquaria in your hatchery, again, you can learn a lot more about them. Um, one of the things I like to emphasize a lot is that most fisheries biologists electrofish. They use a backpack or a boat shocker, shock and stun the fish to catch them. Uh, then they may throw them in a the jar, pickle them in formalin, or they may let them go thinking that they're fine because they swim off, they look and act fine. But if you bring them back in an aquarium that have been caught that way, we have found that within a week or two, they die. That's really interesting. They don't have visible damage, but they have damage internally from the shock. Are, are there many others around the country, around the world that are monitoring in, in a similar way at this point? Have we gotten, is that the is that best there, practices at this point, or is that there is there still? To be. Yeah, uh, there, it, it's becoming much more widespread among fisheries people and uh, ichthyologists, and and even just people that are into the hobby. Yeah, uh, a lot of people sport snorkel for a lack. Yeah, of I, I want to. Yeah, yeah it's it was great. a totally novel idea to me. I came back to Tennessee and and. Um, uh, maybe eight years ago and I, it's not even something I knew that people were doing and I heard about it through this work with the company for contact I still haven't done it but I really want to well, I, gr I grew up snorkeling a little just, bit but just come always out the there with us sometime. yeah 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 thank you thank you I, well I, I my wife and I went to school on the coast in North Carolina undergraduate school and I remember asking around there somewhere we can go in freshwater and snorkel I never really considered it before and and there happened to have been a, a, a large natural lake um, in southeastern North Carolina where we went and started snorkeling and we eventually worked that into a job and uh, I eventually worked it into a master's thesis and and, uh, and when we came here to Tennessee um, we started going snorkeling in some of the streams around here it's an eye-opening experience, and, and typically you're not snorkeling in a, you know, in a nasty low visibility stream. Most of the fishes that we work with are in you know, some of the cleaner streams, and you know we're able to out to, to get out and really uh, see what we're doing out there. So it's a it's that's a awesome. But one of one of my favorite quotes is by Zora Neale Hurston. She says, "You got to go there to know there." So, yeah, that's <laughs> right. yeah. Our, our that's advising what you're professor, doing. our advising professor, Dr. David Etnar of snail dogger fame, um, he used to always say, "You don't know an animal till you've eaten it." <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of think he was using that metaphorically, but then again, maybe not. <laughs> he, used to, he used to like to eat everything. He had what he called <laughs> dead animal parties. People would bring anything and everything, even roadkill that they would eat, <laughs> usually fish. <laughs> but uh, but at any rate, I think metaphorically, he he meant that you want to know everything about it before you yeah. really know the animal. Yeah, and to yeah. to learn as much as you can about it means getting get in intimate <laughs> and and right right getting intimate with it. and uh, and so that's that's helped us a lot along the way um, when we started doing work um, working with our hatchery we had a, a much better feeling for what these fish needed uh, and we ended up trying to replicate that as closely as we could in the hatchery that makes a lot of sense yeah. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So can you tell us in in terms of aquatic biodiversity, what's special about the Southeast where where y'all find yourselves working? Well, one of the the big important issues is that we were never glaciated down here. So in a lot of the northern tier of states where the glaciers occurred, uh, a lot of the aquatic fauna was just wiped out and then they had to recolonize those areas. And so, you know, you tended to get the, the, the aquatic animals that were able to fairly quickly recolonize because insofar as history goes, that's been a fairly recent event. But we also have a variety of habitat down here. If you look at just Tennessee alone, you've got uh, the higher elevation Appalachian Mountains down to the Ridge and Valley areas, down to the Cumberland Plateau. Uh, and the further west you get, you, you get into coastal plain habitat all the way over to the Mississippi River where you have really big river habitat there. And we also have a number of different drainages that, that drain the state. You've got um, the Tennessee and Cumberland drainages that flow into the o- Ohio and the Mississippi River. But you've got just a little bit of a section of the Barren and Green Rivers that flow that are direct tributaries to the Ohio. And then in southeastern Tennessee, you have just a little bit of the section of the Mobile drainage basin. Um, that adds a lot of diversity to our state. And then, of course, the, the streams that flow directly into the Mississippi and western Tennessee. It's a long-standing argument between Tennessee and Alabama, which has the most fish species. <laughs> it's about a good competition. About 350 each. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm all for that, that competition. Uh, <laughs> may, may, the, may the best state win. Um, it goes back <laughs> When it comes to those drainage areas, uh, you know, b- between, say, the Tennessee and the Cumberland and the Green, how much of an impact does that divide have in terms of, of the, the, the type of species um, that you see from one drainage to the, to the next in Tennessee? Is there, are there, is there a pretty significant difference in terms of the species that you see from from one basin to the other or is it is it pretty consistent in Tennessee from one basin to the next? You have wide-ranging species that are found in probably all of those different branches there but Mm -hmm. then you have uh, endemic species that are endemic to certain stream systems some of them to a single stream or river and uh, and when you go well for instance when you go from uh, if you're in southeastern Tennessee and you drop down into the Conestoga River Basin, all of a sudden, most of the fishes are different in yeah. there. They have analogs in the sea drainage yeah. system that look a lot alike some of the ones that you see down there. Sister species. So there's a whole host of different species um, in those couple of little counties down there that you, that you don't see anywhere else in the state. Make, makes evolution <laughs> make a lot of sense doesn't it oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot depends on how mobile and how big and mobile a fish is uh, because if, if they're very mobile they're usually a lot more opportunistic a lot uh, okay they can live anywhere just about but the little fish the little non-game fish what we call cryptic fish that often live under rocks or are nocturnal only out at night they don't range very far, and some of them don't disperse even within the same stream very easily. Uh, 
mad toms, for instance, we found mostly dispersed downstream and you're looking at many, many years before they do disperse. Uh, upstream can take decades, centuries. <laughs> Most of our waters are messed up <laughs> thanks to all uh, of, of the things where we disturb the soil, be it from silviculture, agriculture, development, that all introduces silt and sediment to the water, which messes it up. And all of our best waters are public lands, national forests, national parks. Water coming off of the, the public lands is the water that's in the best shape. Those are the places where we do most of our work, although there are some exceptions. My next question for y'all was, what, what are the primary threats to our biodiversity? And so is, is sediment, siltation, is that the biggest threat? That's that's Overall. probably one of the biggest threats yeah. um, to our to our uh, diversity here in, in the southeast in general. A lot of places in the, the northeast, you have point source pollution, like you'll have a factory or a couple of factories that are dumping something nasty into the water that's, uh, that's killing off the fish there. Down here, it's not so much of that. Uh, like Pat said, it's more of a erosional type problems soil disturbances from road building or, or uh, building of, 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 well, just our towns and cities, you know, just uh, any kind of thing that, that disturbs uh, the sediment and causes it to wash into the stream. Yeah. Coal mining or mining in general can generate a lot, of, uh, a lot of sediments that go into the water that cause problems. And then of course, all of our watersheds are pretty well broken up uh, through impoundments that, that were put in, um, in during the past century that have, uh, that have fractioned up our, our, our different waterways and, and water systems. Yeah, most people don't realize that as soon as you destroy the vegetation on top of the soil, exposing the soil, uh, any rain at all is going to wash that soil into, into flowing waters. Uh, the further downstream you go, the more sediment and the more flowing waters. And, and what does that do most, to the aquatic species? Yeah, most of the rare species that we work with are benthic. They, mm -hmm. they spend most of their life uh, on the on the floor of the stream or the, the river. Uh, a lot of them lay their eggs in the substrate or under rocks that are sitting on the substrate. And if those are choked in with, with mud and silt and sediment, uh, they're not able to make their way in life. Um, their, their food sources are, are usually um, in aquatic insects that live uh, in the substrate. Uh, those guys are suffocated out, so you don't have the food necessary for them to, to thrive. So clean substrate is, is hugely important for these small, um, often rare uh, stream fishes. I was reading about these these historic dams and um, that that we've got in these in these major systems in the state and and um, it, it hurts to, to, to read about the muscle diversity that we had um, right. in, in certain. I was reading about muscle shores in in Alabama and the, and you know the dozens and dozens of species that were just wiped out when those big dams went in. But I know that these um, that these these smaller dams as well, you know, that it have impacts on on species in terms of isolating populations and causing this this sediment buildup and and uh, uh altering the temperature and, and people don't think of dams as bad i mean they're they're good in terms of 
preventing floods, controlling floods and generating electricity. It's green electricity. Uh, but most people don't realize that the fish that used to be in the river there are adapted to flowing water right. and current in the river. And as soon as you put an impoundment on top of it, it's all stagnant water. Most of the fish are gone. There's no place to live. Uh, right. There are a few things like black bass and some of the things we like to fish for that, that survive that just fine. But most of the non-game fish, they're gone. And not right. just above the dam, but below the dam, most of the tailwater releases come off of the hypolimnion, the bottom of a lake, which is anoxic and it's cold. And so everything coming out of the dam and flowing downstream, what used to be a, an oxygenated warm water river is it's all dead because it's cold and it's anoxic. Now, TVA is doing a good job nowadays, uh, which has led to the recovery uh, and the recent delisting of the snail darter uh, by oxygenating the tailwaters and controlling temperature and, and the amount that's released. Yeah, good, good. Um, I, was, I was interested to see on your website um, uh, that some of the species that you have propagated and protected, um, it was uh, not only to help fish species, but also to help uh, with, with mussels uh, because those fish were our uh, hosts for those mussels, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know if you know much about the life history of mussels, but it's a, uh, it's a fairly involved process where they, they spawn they have little free-swimming larvae that can attach to fish's gills and, and scales and fins that look for all the world like a little Pac-Man. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> they, they attach into there and ride and feed off of the mucus uh, off of those areas on the fish for weeks and at some point drop off and go down into the substrate and start to behave a little more like the muscle um, would behave. And that's a, that's a great means of dispersal for them. Um, that's, that's essentially how they get around because if you can imagine a muscle moves pretty slowly in a, in a riverbed. Slower than a snail. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's pretty and slow. That, that can affect their, their distribution um, and, and their ability to make their way in the world. If they're, some of them are very specific about what host they use. And if for instance, that fish dies out or that fish is extirpated from that area, even though that muscle may live a hundred years or 50 years or 60 years and appear to be still hanging on, they're, they're essentially dead in the water. Uh, they'll live their life out, but they, they can't reproduce because they're host fish in there. So we help provide host fish for some of the rare species of mussels um, that are used in different hatcheries in uh, Virginia and North Carolina and, and elsewhere that we've worked with over the years. It seems to work out real just, well. Just fa fascinating, fascinating stuff. It works, that... it works especially well because they have to go out and catch fish to use as hosts to infest with the glochidia, the larval mussels. But um, fish have some immunity to the glochidia and they resist. I saw that on your website, yeah. But if you propagate fish, 
they're uh, naive. I mean, genetic or, or immunologically naive. They've never been exposed to glochidia, so they have no defense. So they're they're perfect hosts to infest. The uh, muscle hatcheries have told us that propagated fish produce far, far more successful <laughs> transforming glochidia than than wild caught fish. Plus, you don't have to. When you bring in wild caught fish that you caught by sanding or shocking, you, you have a lot of losses because it's it's stressful. And that's not the case with propagated fish. They've grown up in an aquarium. This is like the inspiration for a Ridley Scott movie or something. Got, <laughs> wait, is that David Attenborough reached out yet? We we need a, uh, we yet. need a Planet Earth episode about about these muscles. It really uh, is just I've done some some Googling and heard folks talk. It just it really is just incredible to learn about and um, can see some incredible pictures of those lures. Oh, they that different yeah, muscles they have, have online. They have some amazingly accurate me. lures. Yeah, um, I, I mean, there's been lures that have fooled me. You know, when I'm in there in the water, <laughs> in the water, water really. Go, yeah, what is yeah. a fish? And then it's go, yeah, it's not a fish. It's a, uh, it's a muscle lure. I want to see one of those. I, yeah, that'd oh, be it's a, like a seminal life experience it's, right there. It's really I've, I've just seen pictures online. Yeah. So we, we're really excited to have y'all involved in the early stages of a restoration project we're planning on the Eastern Highland Rim. Um, we're using mitigation funding to restore nearly a mile of degraded tributaries to Meadow Branch in Coffee County. And conservation fisheries surveyed the site last spring for Barron's top minnow, flame chubs, and red band darters. Can y'all tell us more about these species and why it was important to survey for them? Well, this was a species that Pat worked on, and so I'll let him elaborate on that. Um, Take it away. Pat. I was out there with the with the survey team, and while we didn't find Barron's top minnows there, they used to be in Meadow Branch. Right. And Pat can tell you more about more about that. Yeah, when I first started at UT during the World's Fair in 1982. I didn't know what I was going to do, but Dr. Eknar had a project lined up for me. He had just recently described the Barron's Top Minnow and knew that they were found out on the Barron's Plateau, knew very little else about them. So that's why I did my life history, studying their diet and their life, you know, lifespan and reproduction, that sort of thing. And at that time, they used to be all over the Barrens, all up and down Highway 55 there. And they used to be in Meadow Branch. Um, I can remember surveying there and I did a lot of binocular surveys. That's all you need with a top minnow because they, they are near the surface and they've got a, a, a reflective stripe. Looks like an exclamation point down the center of their back. Uh, so all you need is binoculars to see that. You can ID them pretty easily. But that was a good population there. And then unfortunately, after I started my thesis, I started noticing something weird going on. Top minnows were declining and disappearing from a lot of places. Didn't know why, but their replacement was mosquito fish. And mosquito fish are not native to the Barrens Plateau. The Barrens Plateau has an escarpment all the way around it and waterfalls that drop off. Uh, and can, I, can I interrupt you really quick and ask you, sure. what do you mean when you say Barrens? What kind of an, an ecosystem is that, an eco region? Or um, is, that, is that different from a cedar glade or is that? Well, they're both low um, limestone plateaus. Cedar glades are a lot drier, of course. Um, okay. The places where Barron's top minnows live are typically uh, springs and groundwater influenced first order or low order uh, streams. 
that's an, a favored locality or favored type of habitat for mosquito fish too, unfortunately. Uh, and, and they're from Illinois or Indiana? No, uh, they're from all over the coastal plain. They're native to the, to the southeast. Oh. They aren't up that high up on gotcha. the plateau. I mean, gotcha. it's not as high as the Cumberland Plateau. It's the interior low plateau to, to the west of the Cumberland Plateau. But until people brought mosquito fish and turned them loose, and TWRA was guilty of this too. They encouraged people to release mosquito fish to supposedly control mosquitoes. Uh, and they do eat mosquito larvae, but they're not as good at eating mosquito larvae as native fish. Mary's Tomatoes, <laughs> Mary's Tomatoes are a better controller. Oh. And unfortunately, fish are like guppies. They're live bears. Uh, they don't lay eggs. Um, and so they're not as vulnerable to things like silt and sediment. And there's a lot of places out on the Barrens where the main industry is uh, dairy farming. And dairy cattle typically can coexist with, with Barrens top minnows because they don't mess things up too much when they're done on a small scale. But if you do it industrially <laughs> on a large scale, they can really mess up water quality. And when you do that, that alone can wipe out the Barron's top minnows. But you combine it with a mosquito fish, which actually eat the eggs of Barron's top minnows and the young, and even nip off the fins of the adults that are bigger than they are. <laughs> that results in the elimination of Barron's top minnows. And they've disappeared almost everywhere. There's only two places left out there. And they're both artificial situations that have barriers downstream that mosquito fish cannot get up over. So those are the only places that Barron's top minnows exist anymore. They are truly human dependent. Yeah. They, they will cease to exist um, if we don't take care of them. With yeah. Refugia or in arcs in captivity, like we have here at our hatchery and down at Tennessee uh, Aquarium. Were the dams construct uh, the barriers constructed specifically for these fish, or were those existing barriers uh, they, they that we took advantage of? Uh, the type locality has a little dam just basically where it goes under the, the culvert under the highway uh, right below the, the pond spring there. Um, oh. And that's the case with the others too. They're all accidental barriers. There's been a couple of places where barriers have actually been built to exclude mosquito fish. Uh, unfortunately, they've been places where um, you have pretty high flow from an adjacent stream different times of the year and it breaches or overcomes or mm. overtops. The, the barrier and the mosquito fish get back in. So you have to have a situation yeah. that you're constantly monitoring to uh, either repair the barrier or remove the mosquito fish or both. And are, is that something that we're still doing some places, uh, encouraging folks to, to? Unfortunately, not enough. Uh, now that it's listed as endangered, there'll be some, you know, until a fish is listed as endangered, there's no funding to do anything to protect it, really. Uh, although in the States, you do have sensitive species that can get some funding, state funding. But most of the funding to do the work that we do is what's called endangered six funding. It's from the Fish and Wildlife Service provided to a state to protect and recover a listed species. And that's where most of our funding has come from back from when we started in 1986. In fact, we still got the same contract going. It's been modified over the years. It's it's, it's a story in itself because that just never happens. It's just unheard of for something to be funded that many years. Really? How about the, um, with those mosquito fish, are, is that something that the, those are still, uh, people are still, you know, using those to 
introducing them to, to new places with the expectation that they're going to help with mosquitoes? I don't think they are actively, but yeah. it's kind of a Pandora's box. Once they've been released on the on the Barron's Plateau, you can't you can't get rid of them. Um, <laughs> actually, you can, but it's it's incredibly labor intensive. Yeah, you know, and you can go in with chemicals uh, and basically yeah. kill all the fish. <laughs> if you want to catch your Barron's top meals first, you don't kill them, and then put them back after you've killed out purposefully all the un unwanted. <laughs> Uh, That's been man. done a couple times. Okay, yeah, the nuclear so, option. Huh? You know, yeah. in reality, it sounds like a great idea to be able to put a fish out there to mos control mosquitoes. You're not poisoning the water, and it yeah. sounds like it's environmentally uh, a great idea. But when you're introducing anything that's exotic or anything that doesn't naturally occur in the area, you're running the risk of of decimating something else. <laughs> and that's well, that, kind of what happened yeah. in, in this situation. They had no idea that it yeah, would have sure, this kind sure. of effect on, on Barron's top minutes. They probably didn't even realize Barron's top minutes were there. Right, and under right. under some circumstances, they can coexist. Yeah. But when you couple that with habitat degradation, mosquito fish can live in a sewer just about. Mm. I mean, they yeah. can live in just about anything. And they can live in much warmer waters than the barren stop minnows can. The barren stop minnows require uh, spring influence in order to uh, survive in, in, in the wild anywhere. And the mosquito fish do not. So if you have groundwater withdrawals for the nursery industry out there, if you have cattle impacting and silting up the springs, you you suddenly sort of shift the balance of power in favor of the mosquito fish and the, the topman has really suffered mm -hmm. in the face of that. So, you know, while while it's probably not necessary to get rid of all the mosquito fish, it'd be wonderful if we could. We could probably create some areas that are so favorable to the topmans that they could coexist um, in some of these areas. And and we've seen that. And, in yeah. some of the sites where they where they persisted out there, it wasn't until the habitat was degraded in those sites that you started losing all the top numbers. Yeah, they used to occur in the Elk River drainage in one pond, a big spring-fed pond called Spring Pond, uh, and they coexisted. The two species coexisted for many many years from when I first started studying them, because that was one of my study populations in eighty, starting in eighty two. Unfortunately, the landowner hasn't done the best job of keeping his cows out of that spring-fed pond, and therefore they tromp it all up, poop in it, uh, stir up a lot of silt and sediment, and give the advantage to the mosquito fish. And the mosquito fish have eliminated that population of Barron's top meadows. They're gone. Uh, we've got some here. The, aquarium, the Tennessee Aquarium's got some, and we've discovered one population where I reintroduced them uh, near Cowan. Uh, that one still exists. Uh, somehow they're coexisting out there. How have y'all had the most success in working with private land owners? And and um, you know when you when you've got a, a situation like this with Baron's top minnow and and um, how have you been successful in, in in communicating the value of of of, of species with someone who's um, doesn't have this, you know, the, the, the experience and, and expertise that, that you've gotten is coming at it from this whole other angle. 
more often than not, it's not us having to react with the landowner. Uh, it'll be some state or county agent sometimes. Or the nature conservancy. Yeah. yeah. Or you guys. Or, yeah, you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody, what's great is if you have someone that actually knows the people there. Yeah. They know who some of the key landowners are, and they know that if they can convince those key landowners to do something, a lot of others will sort of fall in line with them. So yeah. it's, it's often not us that are the ones that are communicating with yeah. them. Some of the best people are people who are working for NRCS and work you know, basically for agriculture benefits yeah. Yeah. for the landowners. Because don't listen to them. Totally. Yeah, that, now that's, we, that's we, been we try to, too. We try to uh, participate in programs, often called stream schools, where you get people in the water snorkeling. Yeah. Uh, we usually yeah. do those in, in uh, state and national parks and forests. Um, and we do one here with the Little River Watershed Association in the Little River. Uh, in fact, we're getting ready to do one October 2nd, last one this year. But getting kids in the water yeah. so they can see stuff underwater for themselves for the first yeah. time, then they go home and communicate that to their entire family. That's one of the best outreach tools there is. And then grow up too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they start doing what you're doing. Get, getting back to um, back to this this site in, in Coffee County again. Um, is is it is there any hope for a, a reestablishment a species like Barron's top minnow in in this in these tributaries? That sounds like that would be um, qu quite quite difficult, perhaps, uh, or or other spe priority species, perhaps. Um, what would it take to um, to reestablish priority species in a stream like that? I think I would say difficult, but not impossible. Yeah. Um, one thing I recall about that site is there weren't a lot of mosquito fish there. Yeah. That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, but but controlling the cattle's access to the, the stream and the spring runs uh, can yeah. go a long way toward improving the water quality there. There are already some some really nice i mean there was that was a really diverse little tributary mm -hmm. lots of the red band darters um you know the little spring cave fish that we found in there is a good indicator of good water quality um you know there were other darters in there that were that were doing well so and the flame chubs were were very common in there so there were some good indicators of, of good water quality in that stream and so really just but it was real silty and uh, mm. you know the the things that were doing well were things that tend to spawn in uh, more faster moving water so those areas tend not to accumulate silt as much as the pools and gotcha. slower runs do. So, you know, just, just improving the situation with the cattle can go a long way. More of a riparian buffer. Um, yes. You don't yeah. want too much of a riparian buffer. The, the Barrett's Topmans really need open spring runs. Uh, we, we, and Pat can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I can't remember ever finding them in areas with a uh, heavy overstory no. they just okay didn't seem to like that at all they interesting need that, they need that aquatic vegetation actually it's filamentous algae uh to lay their eggs in and that's only where you've got sunlight 
in in Meadow Branch or any of those streams out there, the, the perfect way to protect Barron's topmost would be to have a, a barrier out there that prevents mosquito fish from getting above the barrier. And then you go in and remove mosquito fish uh, with pesticides or, or by capture. And then you protect and monitor the water above that dam indefinitely, really. In an even more perfect world, which hasn't happened yet, it's not invented yet, you could do uh, genetic engineering like they're doing with mosquitoes to get rid of Zika virus. They're making sterile and releasing sterile males. And then basically they're, they're producing a sterile population of mosquitoes that can't reproduce anymore. And you can do the same thing with something like mosquito fish. Uh, now, keeping it limited to an area that you want, <laughs> that might be hard. <laughs> That's fascinating. Could you tell us more about the the spring cavefish that you found, y'all highlighted that in the report that you sent back to us. And I, you know, you're highlighting it. <laughs> Had me um, looking it up. I thought, well, this this must be this must be wor one worth um, uh, checking out the Wikipedia Wikipedia page for, which I did. And and I was fascinated by this species. They're cool little fish, and they're almost always associated with. Uh, well, they are all always associated with a lot of good groundwater. They probably are facultative cave dwellers. I mean, not, uh -huh. not even necessarily a cave, but uh, they probably do go underground, uh, you know, in the, in the vicinity of some of these spring outflows. Um, it's just a, it's a cool little fish that we don't run across very often. Yeah. Um, but it is a good water quality indicator of, and, and definitely an indicator of good spring flow. Yeah, it's a good indicator of groundwater and karst topography, like most of the barrens, because I've collected them several different places out there on the barren. They used to be in Pond Spring. I don't know if they still are or not. I, I read that the first one was discovered in a well in Lebanon, <laughs> which is neat. And then I saw the range yeah. too, just this tiny little range, you know, yeah, that includes part bad. of the Cumberland River Basin. And amazing, mostly blind, right? Uh, just about and very um, reduced eyesight. Uh, okay, they are pigmented, but they're pretty closely related to unpigmented cavefish. Okay, well, we're really excited about this this project and excited to have y'all involved. And we'll be fencing out cattle um, from the stream and 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 um, establishing a permanent conservation easement alongside the banks, okay. fifty feet um, from from both banks, and and are and are excited about improved conditions there for. Um, for all uh, species that um, uh, are, are unique to that to that area um, and indicate a, a healthy ecosystem, so so thanks already for for what you've done and being being a resource for us. Um, and speaking of of being a great resource, just generally, y'all have decades of, of this hugely valuable experience under your belt with conservation fisheries. Um, passionate, knowledgeable about so many species that are struggling on the brink of extinction or have gone extinct. Um, that's got to be psychologically tough. Sometimes I, I know a lot of talented people spend a couple of years doing environmental nonprofit work. They get burned out. I've, I've heard some people talk about, hey, you know, this, keep in mind, this is a marathon. You know, it's not a sprint. So, and, and, I, and I see people just with this weight on them sometimes too, you know, and, and I just, and I, and I want to, you know, I want to say just, you know, keep, keep that in mind, you know, this is that, that marathon, we need you, we need you in this, you know, for that, 
for the for the distance um and so so what yeah what's what's kept y'all going you know how, how do we um you know end up with more professionals like y'all sustaining building on the work that you've done um over the long term well i think for us it's it's just seeing the successes that we've had and the things that we've been able to learn that can be translated into management by different agencies. Uh, at least that's what what I have to think about because otherwise, like you say, it's awfully easy to get burned out. Uh, I've had people tell us that, wow, what you're doing is really great, but you know it's just a waste of time because of all the people and you know it's not gonna get better. And maybe that's true, but I'd rather go down fighting than, <laughs> than just give up and, and say, well, you're right. You know, it's probably not worth doing any of this. I like to feel like we're accomplishing things. And, and you know, Pat and I have been doing this for a long time. And uh, I, I feel like we have. I feel, I feel like, like you have too. Yeah. One thing that's always good to keep in mind is that we're never going to get rich at this. <laughs> Nobody pays it. <laughs> to do. But both of us came to this work because of our curiosity about the natural world and about fish behavior and, and reproduction. And we never stop learning. It's a never ending learning process. And that's what makes the difference. It's been so nice to, to speak with both of y'all. Thanks again for being on the program and, and for speaking with me. Um, it's, it's great to get to know you both a little bit better. Um, what can our listeners do to support aquatic biodiversity and the work of conservation fisheries? Money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as us, we, we are a nonprofit organization. We will happily uh, take your money. But, uh, but, but and you're not, not getting rich, but you're doing good for <laughs> right. That requires no money, ed education. Get, get out there, you know, we like to see people appreciate and enjoy what we have out there because while there are some streams that are getting loved to death, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. If you, if you don't have people that appreciate what you have, um, learn, learn something about it because you're not going to be interested in saving these things if you don't know they're there. Um, there, there's been some nice films lately uh, that have come out that have emphasized uh, the diversity and the beauty of some of our freshwater streams here in the, primarily in the southeastern U.S. And, um, you know, those things go a long way toward showing people what's in there. When we take people out snorkeling, uh, kids and, and adults alike, so many times we go, wow. You know, we, we had no idea, you know, we had no idea there were things like this out there. That's so cool. You know, what can we do to help and, and uh, just, just learn about them, appreciate them. Uh, when you, when you have things like developments come up, make sure they're done right. It, we don't want to stop development. We'll never stop development, but there are ways to do development in, that are, much less invasive than some of the other ways that have been done in the past. And I've, I've even talked to developer friends that have said, well, you know, it really doesn't cost us that much more to do it right than to just 
do it without the intention of what's going on out there. JR, Pat, thanks very much. It's been excellent having you on the show. Sure. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you to JR and Pat for joining Jed Grubbs in conversation on River Talks today. If you'd like to learn more about what was mentioned in this episode, you can visit our blog at cumberlandrivercompact.org blog. And if you haven't heard, you can join our River Talks community together this fall. We are hosting in-person and virtual events for a chance to learn together. Check out our website for all the details. We hope to see you there.